Well, welcome back, everybody. Let me get your attention just for a few moments. Welcome back. Uh, how many of you guys here? Shh. How many have perfect attendance? This is five for five. All right. Don't blow it. You do not want to blow it. This is... I mean, some of you have never graduated from anything. Here's your first opportunity to graduate from AU. AU. Alpha University. Anyway, well, welcome back tonight. Uh, anybody first time here tonight? Any first timers here tonight? Well, welcome. It's great to have you tonight. Thank you. We do have... Uh, you can uh, go back to our, the Lakeview Christian Center uh, YouTube channel. Uh, we've got the CDs at the bottom uh, of the stairs tonight as well. Uh, Mike Weiscarver, welcome. Watching from Florida this evening, Mike. Uh, this will count toward perfect attendance, so don't worry. We're, we're aware of that. So we have the housekeeping showing up in just a minute to make sure you're still watching. So uh, don't go on to Housewives of Beverly Hills or anything like that. So... Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, well, tonight, uh, the topic, how and why should I read the Bible? Um, many years ago, if you'd asked me that question uh, about the Bible, uh, it wasn't necessary because my meology did not need the Bible. You know, Jesus was just all right with me, and that was, that was enough. Um, but, you know, an understanding of the importance of the, of the God of the Bible means that I have to have some knowledge of the Bible. And as I asked you guys the first week, those of you who are here the first week, I asked the question, remember, how many of you grew up reading or studying the Bible or having some awareness of the Bible? And in a room of that night of 142 people, I believe, about seven or eight hands went up. And so, uh, though we may own a lot of Bibles in our house or have a Bible in our house, it's the rare ones of us who have actually read it. So, but many years ago, uh, before, you know, I came into a relationship with Christ, before I got in the wheelbarrow, said I do, received the gift, um, if you'd have tested me about the Bible, I would have flagged it miserably. So tonight, I just want to give you an idea of uh, Frank's remedial Bible quiz, okay? Just a few questions here. Uh, why should you read the Bible? Uh, I had absolutely no idea. I guess... I don't know, maybe because you should? Um, I don't know. Uh, question number two, is Christianity based only on the Bible? That seemed a little narrow, so I probably would have said, nah, probably not. That would have been the second one I got wrong. Um, question number three, in what Bible book is God addressed as the man upstairs? Um, that would be the gospel according to Garth Brooks, as I believe. Um, Question number four, what book reveals the location of the stairway to heaven? That would be the gospel according to Led Zeppelin, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what book reveals the location of the highway to hell? Um, that's right. The gospel according to ACDC. Then, I, I, again, I was missing all these. I had a 50% chance on this one. True or false is Noah's wife's name, Joan of Ark. I was like, I said yes. I thought it was. Um, then I wasn't sure about this one. I thought maybe I could get partial credit. Name the four Gospels. Um, John. Um, Paul. Um, George and Ringo. So I... I I got, only got one of those right. Um, um, going on real quick. Oh, write three Bible verses you know. Well, so I just, you know, I can't wait. Um, cleanliness is next to godliness. Like my mother told me that was in the Bible. Um, um, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Do you remember that one? Uh, that's the only way you can be earth, of earthly good, by the way. But, and then uh, the third, my third guess was God helps those who help themselves. Actually, the opposite is just the case. But, um, but so, oh, oh, bonus question. I at least had a bonus question. Aren't you thank, you thank God for those bonus questions? They're a little bit, a little easier sometimes. So uh, here's the bonus question. What Bible verse puts the most fear of God in you? 
So I thought about this one long and hard, and I knew I had it right. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Now, I wasn't sure about this, but the last line, I think I had it right. So be good so you don't bake. So, Frank's remedial quiz. Um, but actually, you know, when you, when you think about these things, what is true is that if you, if you begin to read the scriptures and you read Romans 3.10, there is none right before God, not even one. All of us have sinned and come short of that which is acceptable to God. The wages of our sin is death. It's separation from God. Like, I, like I've told you guys, these plugs will be out, these outlets will be out here. We are plugged into being spiritually separated from God. If what the Bible says is true, you and I are spiritually separated from God. And our best efforts on our best days are still plugged in to being separated from, from him. So, so when it came to the Bible, because I hadn't read it, though I did have my own concept of God as a religious meologist, I assumed things about the Bible, and I just thought stereotypically. Um, but stereotypically thinking is not actually, or not really, thinking. It's certainly not critically thinking. And because we don't know what the Bible says, we can draw some stereotypical and incorrect, maybe sincere, but incorrect conclusions. One, a conclusion. You can't understand it. It's really too hard to understand. Some of these I think you guys are going to be able to uh, understand and, and uh, associate with. Uh, there's so many different interpretations. I mean, who's to know what the right interpretation is, really? Um, or it's all bad news anyway. I mean, I got enough guilt piled onto my life already without the Bible adding to that. Or, or this is my personal favorite. We're not supposed to read it. Now, whoever told you that? The Bible did not tell us that. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us just the opposite. And I could pull out one scripture after the other. I've just got time for one, though. Um, it's, and and this, is, this is the Gospel of John, the 20th chapter. Now, now here's okay, John's Gospel. But these are written. Now, why do you write something down? Yeah, so that someone read it, right? These are written. What, what are they written for? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, why is this written? Now, if Christ is raised from the dead, if the Bible is true, this is a pretty serious statement here. It's written so you can believe. It's written so you have something to read. You have the truth to read. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing. Okay, we just remember, remember over the last few weeks, we've kind of uh, colloquialized these, this term believing. It means getting in the wheelbarrow, saying I do, receiving the gift, so that you may have, what did we say we need? We need life. If what the Bible says is true, I don't need a better form of me. I don't need to be better than you. I need to be better than Jesus. <laughs> And that's just not happening. And so I need life. And so that, that's just so very important. So why read the Bible? If you want to get in your manual tonight, for whatever reason, it's top of page 34. And I, I just wondered, like, I'm not asking you to raise your hand here, but I just wonder, how many of you, uh, if you want to raise your hand, you can. But you don't have to. How many of you read the Bible more in the last four weeks than you have the four, last four years? For decades. Yeah. Um, forever. Um, and and, and that's, that's okay. That's not here. I'm not saying that to shame anybody. It's just, we just don't know. Um, here, here's, a, here's a quote. Matter of fact, our, our pastor Keith Collins used this quote, not, at least it was in his notes. I don't know if he used this quote or not, but this is by Paul Tripp. It's a quote. I hope you'll. What a, doesn't he just look like everybody's grandfather? Just a gosh, what a sweet looking man. This is, what, this is what Paul Tripp says. He says, every person who has ever lived, okay, that would include all of us here, 
has desperately needed the unfolded mysteries found in Scripture. The Bible is not so much a religious book left to be relegated to the hallowed and separate corridors of institutional religion. It says, no, the Bible is a life book given for life purposes so that the creatures to whom it is given, that would be us, would look for life in the only place where life can be found. The doctrines of the Bible are not so much ideology. I want to read that again. The doctrines of the Bible are not so much ideology as they are living and divine tools of salvation, transformation, identity, and guidance. I just I love how Paul Tripp just encapsulated this whole. The doctrines of the Bible are not so much pie-in-the-sky, esoteric-type religious mumbo-jumbo. They are boots-on-the-ground, living, divine tools for believing, God changing us, transforming us, giving us a new identity, and guidance for life. So good. Well, let's just talk about a couple of the things about the Bible. We're going to talk about the Bible being a popular book, a powerful book. We're going to talk about the Bible being a, uh, a book of prophecy. And we're going to talk about it being a precious book as well. So it's powerful in its production, its purpose, and its preservation. Let's just look at a couple here of of uh, folks that had something to write. So these are, these are 23 of the, the most popular, most sold authors in the history of literature. Okay, there's J.K. Rowling, right? The Harry Potter mysteries. I guess Beatrix Potter may have been related to Harry, but I'm not sure. Um, there's Lewis, uh, the Berenstain Bears, Stan and, Stan, that was one of my, Ian Fleming, you know, I don't know half the people on this list. Okay, but if you take all of their books that were ever sold, three and a half billion sold total. If you take the number of Bibles that were just sold in, 19, in the 1990s, you have over five billion Bibles sold just in the 1990s, and that doesn't include the number of Bibles given away. And so we see the Bible is a very popular book, and it's had a fairly powerful impact on people, some powerful men as well. George Washington wrote, It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. So, okay, um, so we talked about the Bible being a very popular book, the all-time bestseller forever, virtually, um, and uh, that it's powerful in its production and that's had a powerful impact on some powerful man. I was beginning to read this just brief quote by George Washington. It's impossible. I, I don't know that they're paying attention to this in the land in which George is named for today, but it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Um, just it's interesting. It seems like as a people, the more we move away from the Bible, the more we move toward uh, discord and division. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. And then Reagan was another. I, I've got so many of these, but I can just give you three. He said, within the covers of the Bible are all the answers for all the problems men face. So, so some of the most important, most powerful, influential men in the world saw the importance, the necessity of governing by the directives of the Scripture. So there's one more very powerful man that I want to introduce you to right now um, who I have asked to come and just share his story for a minute. So the gentleman that's heading up Table two, by popular demand, Mr. Charles Abbott is coming. I thought you were leaving. I saw you turn and go that way. Um, hey, Mike, can I, where'd Mike go? He left. Do, can I get one of these microphones here, Bob? Okay, thank you. This is green. Are you Irish, Charles? Um, so anyway, Charles, um, 
how many years ago we're sitting over there? 11. 11 years ago, sat at that table as a guest. And um, I'm going to let you guys hear his really... Hello. Beautiful. Um, as Frank said, and I'm going to try to stay a little bit on, on script, how to write this out because it could last an hour, and I don't want to do that. Um, but in 2011, uh, my wife was invited to come to Alpha by a friend of hers that went to church here. Uh, my wife asked me to come with her, and there was nothing in me that wanted to come. Um, I absolutely just said, it's the last place I want to be, a bunch of people sitting around talking about God, the Bible, whatever, um, not where I needed to be, not where I wanted to be, no thank you. Obviously, she won, I came to Alpha. Um, but deep down, I promised uh, sort of to myself that I would make sure I explained to her after night one, there would be no reason for me to have to come back. Uh, and she probably would not want to come either. Um, I have no clue why, but I was determined to prove whoever the person was that was presenting uh, wrong. Um, I just, I didn't need any help with my religious faith. I was very confident in where my faith was, and no one was really going to tell me about my faith that I didn't already know. Uh, and, I, and my basis for that was I, I grew up in a fairly religious family, um, went to an all-boys religious high school on the North Shore, um, had attended church almost every weekend with the family, almost every weekend. I was a Eucharistic minister in high school. Um, and then after that, since high school, never really went to church, never really thought much about church. Uh, but for some reason, I was very passionately loyal and, and defensive of my faith. Um, on night one of Alpha, I came and the entire room was asked, I think Frank even mentioned again tonight, how many people believed in eternal life? Uh, and I was right there, you know, hand ready to go up. Um, and, and most everyone else did. Similar to 11 years ago, 12 years ago, it was similar to this group here. Uh, when asked if we believed that the Bible contained information about eternal life, uh, my hand was going up. Similar to this, this group as well. Um, and I said I believed that. But as the night went on, I realized that while I may have said I believed those things, uh, I had spent actually little time actually reading the Bible and little time and little appreciation in what the Bible actually said and what it did not say. I had apparently created a lot of things that Bible actually did not and does not say. And that, that hit me really hard. I had basically based my entire religious belief system something that I was passionately loyal to and about on something that I had never actually pursued, thought about, or given much thought to. Um, and that was probably the only area in my life that I was like that. As a litigation attorney, um, I've spent hours and hours and hours over the last 20 years diving into facts of cases, to records, hundreds of thousands of pages of records. You can pay me and I will go dedicate my energy, my life to my family's detriment for your issues and problems. It's not a plug for me as your lawyer. <laughs> um, and other than just the law, it's working with experts. I will go learn toxicology and epidemiology, um, all sorts of different subject matters for which I'm not trained, you know, studied with. Um, but it's something I will do and have done and, and have been doing it for many, many years. Yet I had spent absolutely no time looking at the Bible, no time examining what eternal life was or actually meant, no time what the Bible actually said about Jesus, about me as a sinner, um, and my so-called religion. So I realized after night one that I was probably not going to prove this guy, Frank, wrong. Uh, instead, I was encouraged to critically analyze what was being discussed at Alpha. Uh, it wasn't check out my mind, or, or not bring my mind, but rather bring my mind. A apply the same rigorous scrutiny that I would to my work, 
and everything else, apply it to my faith and, and test my faith. Um, and to try to investigate why I believed what I said I believe on night one. Came to night two of Alpha, still hoping to prove Frank wrong. There was something competitive about it. Like, I wanted to prove this guy wrong. Um, but I came in much more hungry uh, to just know the truth. And that was sort of the, the, the difference. I, I had this burning desire. Whatever the truth was, whichever way it fell, I was just hungry and excited to figure out just what the truth was. And the quote from C.S. Lewis that I think he showed on night one and also Alpha 2 just kept hitting me over and over and over. And it was, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And if the Bible is true, and I believed it was, and Alpha clearly helped me line those just, it is a historical book. That's simple. I can do just A plus B. It's, it's just logical. If it's true, and what it contains is true, well, then that statement by C.S. Lewis is one of the most impactful statements. If you believe in Christianity, then it cannot be moderately important. And I had approached it with just this, eh, it's kind of important. And sort of from that night on, it just hit me of this may now be the most important thing. Fast forward to week four, uh, got the cards. I think we had them then. Prayed the sinner's prayer. Uh, if you remember the analogy uh, from last week, uh, said I do, leaned in and continued to make Christianity the most important thing. Uh, and I, I just, I could not let that go. Um, and I've talked about it with our table before too. I didn't share, shed tears at that moment. I've, I've heard others say that when they, they were, were saved and born again, tears and you know, fireworks went off and lightning bolts you know, came flying. Uh, for me, that was not the case. Um, I prayed. I said, I do. I did it with my mind. I did it with my heart, and I believed. And I woke up the next day. No tears, no anything. I was like, all right, maybe... Uh, that was anticlimactic. But fast forward, and someone, and I, we were somewhere, and someone had just looked and said, you've changed. And I, and I never even realized it. I turned around and just kind of looked around and said, I am a changed person. I have, I've truly been born again. So fast forward 12 years later, um, it's a shock. It, it's the awe of God, but to stand up here from where I was sitting over there at that table, um, confident in my faith, confident in the truth. Thank you. I'll turn it off. Thank you so much. Doesn't matter. I know you did table two really proud, Charles. Thank you. You guys going to let him get away with that? <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I'll give it to you. You're right, you're right, you're right. I'm not going to argue with an attorney. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Anyway, thank you, my friend, so much, so much. So we talked about the fact that it's a, pop a popular book, a powerful book has powerful impact. Its, it's preservation is, is amazing as well. You remember, guys, remember maybe the second, second week, we talked about the science of textual criticism and the bibliographical test when it comes to ancient documents and that there's not, a, there's not an ancient manuscript or ancient manuscripts as, as, as many in number or in consistency or a shorter time span from the original autograph to the to the copies in this. So we saw the quantity of manuscripts. There's, no, there's none even close in the works of antiquity. Remember, it was like 25,000 copies of the New Testament. The quality of the manuscripts, they're consistent. There's very little discrepancy in any of those manuscripts. I think I, 
showed you guys like 99.5% consistency and the 0.5% has nothing to do with doctrine or theology. And then we talked about the time span between the original and the, the copies. There's, there's no shorter time span in any books of antiquity between the original autograph and the copies than in the New Testament. You know, when we look at archaeology, the science of archaeology, many would have thought when archaeology became a more prolific and uh, precise science that it would prove all these Bible stories away. Well, not so much. It didn't quite happen that way. And archaeology, archaeology, if anything, has actually buttressed the historicity and the correctness of the scripture. Nelson Gluck, considered one of the fathers of modern archaeology, was the president of Hebrew Union College. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. They form tesserae. Those are like the little tiles that you see in mosaics. In the vast mosaic of the Bible's almost incredibly correct historical memory. And it's something that even is, is interesting as well is there's a, there's a periodical that comes out. It used to come out six times a year. I think it comes out four times a year called Biblical Archaeology Review. And the whole premise of this publication is to continue to update biblical archaeology. And so it's, you know, again, we see this science in the science of archaeology as well. And then let's just look at prophecy for a minute. There are 313 prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures that speak of a Messiah that is coming. Now, now Peter Stone, in his book, Science Speaks, it's a book on, the, on the, the topic of the science of probability, of one person fulfilling 313 of those prophecies is just an astronomical number. But if you just look at one person fulfilling 48 of the prophecies, okay, that is 10 to the 157th power. Okay, that's what this looks like. It is 10 with 156 zeros after it. Okay, so the chance of one person fulfilling all, just 48 of the 313 is an astronomical number. Let's just cut that number to eight. Let's just look at eight of the prophecies, his place of birth, his type of birth, his time of appearance, his Jerusalem entrance. Okay, you see the, the Hebrew scripture references here. The Jerusalem entrance, his betrayal, his type of death, the burial, the resurrection. Okay, if you look at that, that's 10 to the 17th power. Okay, that's 10 with 17, pardon me, with 16 zeros after it. Now, I have checked this and checked this and checked this to see if this is really true. And so 10 to the 17th power, okay, is the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Okay, can you imagine that? Uh, so... So let's do this. Let's take one of those silver dollars and put an X on it, throw it into the middle of the state, add a little Texas twister, and the chance of someone finding on the first try that X marked silver dollar is 10 to the 17th power. So just one person fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. And we see through Scripture Jesus fulfilling all of those prophecies. It's historically accurate. And the prophecies of scriptures written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Christ are corroboratable. And so we see that it's amazingly accurate historically, archaeologically, and in terms of prophecy as well. And we see that it's a precious book. It's a precious book because it reveals who God is and who we are with him and who we are without him. It's not a self-help book at all, but it is a self-revealing book and a God-revealing book. It's, that's, it's just that important. And as, as Charles mentioned a minute ago, God is not calling us to chuck our brains or check our brains at the door. 
But the rub for us is that we want to know it all, right? We humans, we deserve to have all the answers. Well, the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us all we want to know. But the Bible does tell us all we need to know. It was Mark Twain that said this about the Bible. He said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It, it's the parts I do. <laughs> and so how perfectly put by, by Twain. It's just, but that's true. I mean, so the scripture tells us that God wants us to humbly, thoughtfully search. So uh, in, the, in the gospel of Matthew, in the 22nd verse, Jesus is challenged by a Jewish lawyer. Now, basically, this means someone skilled in the Jewish law, okay? not necessarily like an American or an English barrister or something like this. And Matthew writes, a lawyer asked Jesus a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, now a little multiple choice here for us here, with all of your sincerity, your enthusiasm. Just be sincere, be enthusiastic. Um, nothing wrong with those things. Love them with all your higher consciousness, um, with your gut feelings. Just feel like that's right. Or it's pizza. Um, or, or E, mind. Now, this is an interesting thing. You shall, what the Lord? Love the Lord with all of your heart. Now, to the Jew, that's the whole being. That's basically every bit of you. It's like the umbrella of the person, of the being. The soul, the emotions. Uh, in another translation, there's strength with, with all your bodily strength. What do you think the answer is here? A, B, C, D, mind, okay? And then Jesus goes on to say, this is the great and foremost command. So God doesn't expect us to check our brains at the door or to or part with them. He wants us to love him with our minds, the minds he's given us in thoughtful search, recognizing that if there is a God and he is that God, he is supernatural, perfect in all of his ways, and we are natural, imperfect in all of our ways. And yet, as we talked about in week three, God has initiated our having a relationship with him and him taking us out of death and giving us the only life there is that is life, and that is the life of Christ. So page 34, why and how we should read the Bible, one. We're still on page 34. Um, one, God has spoken in revelation of himself. I just want to take us through just a couple of, of um, textual aspects of the Bible right now. Let's just get a couple of historic facts surrounding the scriptures. Okay, It is comprised of 66 books, 37 in the Old Testament, 29 in the New Testament. Um, these are the exact same books that, the, that uh, are in the Hebrew Bible. It's not 37 books because in the Hebrew Bible, they combine, like if you're familiar at all with the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel is just Samuel. Chronicles is just Chronicles. Okay? Kings is just not First and Second Kings, but, but Kings. There's 29 New Testament books. There are 40 authors from various walks of life. I mean, you have fishermen and kings and... And on and on, tax collectors and shepherds and on and on and on. So 40 different authors across a time span of 1,500 to 1,800 years consists of narrative history, war stories, drama, exposition, letters, prophecies, sermons, and wisdom literature. And then it's written on three continents, right? Asia, Africa, Europe. It's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Just some just historical things about that. And if you just kind of break down the books of the Bible, it kind of looks like this. We've got a little handout for you guys tonight if you, if you want to take that a little, a little booklet that kind of tells us this. So we see the Old Testament broken up into the law, okay? The law would be the first five books of, of, the, of the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to Deuteronomy. It's called the Torah or the Pentateuch, Penta for five, the books of Moses. If you look at the whole uh, Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures, 
it's, it's called the Tanakh, which is an acronym, an acronym for uh, the Hebrew scriptures. And then you've got the historic books all through here. Okay, you've got, then you've got poetry books and wisdom books from Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Um, you've got the major prophets, Isaiah through Daniel. They're not major because they're more important than these. They're just bigger books. Okay, the minor prophets are smaller in their texts, but no less important. And then you've got the New Testament, the four Gospels. You've got the Acts of the Apostles, which is the history of the first church. And, and the spreading of the gospel throughout the known world. Then we've got Paul's 13 epistles. Epistles are letters. They are written to those who are in Christ. They're written to those who believe, have gotten in the wheelbarrow, who've said, I do. Uh, and then we have the general epistles. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, John's three, three epistles, Jude. And then we have the one prophetic book, the book of Revelation. And so it's kind of a breakdown of what of what, how the scripture is laid out. And the Bible reveals in writing what you and I know internally is true, that there's something bigger than us. We know that intuitive. We can look at creation, you know, around us, the amazing aspects of creation, whether you're under the sea or into, into the, the, to the stratosphere and beyond. And then we have this sensation inside. Why do I know right from wrong or feel guilt or happiness, or any emotion whatsoever. Where does that come from? Well, the scripture is real clear that we're created in the image of God. And we have, though that image is marred by sin, we are those who are the effect of a greater cause, an intelligent cause. So, why should I read the Bible? Well, if it's true, it holds all the answers to all the questions that we have in life that deal with life in the dash and life in the line. But unless you and I know what it says, we won't know how important it is. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable. It's good for teaching, for reproof, okay, to teach you what's right. To show you what's wrong, to correct what's wrong for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the, so the scripture is given to show us that which is right and that which is wrong, and to train us. To, you know, if, you, if you're working out, if you work out your physical body, you're training your spiritual muscles. That's a good thing, but it's only so good. This is talking about working out your spiritual muscles, so that in the midst of Maybe the evil in this world. Now, next week, we talk about evil. How can I resist evil? That's our topic for next week. So I'm just letting you know, this, this training is good for spiritual strength in a world that is, seems to be ever darkening and evil more and more prevalent. And how did we horrifically experience that again yesterday in Nashville? So it tells us that God's he teaches and he reproves us and he corrects us and he trains us. But all of that is love motivated. Now, God is not chasing me around waiting for me to make a mistake. So he just bopped me on the head. That's kind of the picture that I had of God. I was just trying to stay out of his way. That is not the picture of religion that I held by faith sincerely. But wrongly. As if God was wanting me to screw up. But love motivated. Yes. It teaches me that. Jesus bore the anger and wrath of God for me. And if Jesus bore the anger and wrath of God for me and he gave me his life. Now think about this for a minute. If Jesus paid the penalty for all of my sins and made me a new creation, even put himself in me by God's spirit to make me not only forgiven, but acceptable to him. How much wrath is there left for God to pour out on you? There is none. Jesus fully took on all of our sins and all of our rebellion or none of it. This is important to see. There is no more wrath of God for those who are in Christ. I know you're starting to get worried. Um, there's no more wrath of God for those who are in Christ. Because God places us in Christ 
and has us acceptable, as acceptable to God as Christ is himself. He gives us whose life? Christ's life. And that's what makes us acceptable to him. And so the Bible is our instruction manual for life. The Bible tells us that we can't do life without the instruction manual. That we, I mean, how many of you like to read instructions? After you've messed up putting whatever you're putting together, right? It's just, why do we do that? But the Bible teaches that we have a need for God and without him, the parts of life and life just don't come together. And the Bible is God's instruction manual. But the issue is this, you and I don't read the instructions until we see that we have a need that we can't fill ourselves. No one comes, particularly Christ, because of because everything's just peachy keen. It's when you and I see that we have a need so big that you and I cannot fulfill it that we start to ask questions. There's no need sensed. This is just interesting information. But what, what I find has happened is I've talked to so many people and just Charles telling his story tonight as well is I begin to see that I do have a need. There is this aching on the inside of me that nothing, this emptiness that nothing has been able to fill. Not even my, maybe even my own efforts, my own religious efforts were just not enough. That's because I'm trying to do those things as a spiritually dead man. I'm not recognizing I need life. I don't need to be better. I need life. I need to be alive. And only I can, I can only be alive if I accept that I can't do this on my own. I can't do it on my own. All right, let's do this. I promised you last week we'd go back to Niagara Falls. And here we are once again. Um, a little bit later than I'd hoped to be here, but that's okay. So remember last week I told you that, uh, that uh, Blondin strung a rope from one side of Niagara to the next. It was not the falls. It was the rapids that nobody's ever, ever survived to fall into the rapids. And he went from one side of the falls to the next. Remember, he t I, I said, if you were here last week, you're going to remember this. If you weren't, you won't remember this. Um, but he said, I can take a person, put them in a wheelbarrow, take them from one side of the falls to the next. And he says, anybody believe me? And then what he did was he took a bunch of rocks, about 150, 180 pounds of rocks, and he went from one side of the wheelbarrow and the next. And he asked the question, anybody believe now that I could do it? And somebody raised their hand, and Blondin said, then get in. See, believing is getting in. But who wants to get in for no reason if I don't have a need to get in? Right? Because the moment you get in, you know what? Okay, so let's just say all of us have gone. We're watching Blondin. Okay, the, the rapids are behind me. The way you came in is behind you. And you come in and, but, and Blondin says, well, get in. Well, who's going to get in? I don't have to get in. Why would I get in? Because you know what all you gonna, guys are going to do the moment I get, I get in the wheelbarrow? This is what you're going to do. Hey, can you wait just one second? And you're just going to go, please fall. Please. I mean... Uh, this is the video that I've been waiting for. Um, and, and so, but let's just say for a moment, let's add to our analogy here. Blonde says, I can take a person, put them in a wheelbarrow, take them from one side to the next. That's nice. But all of a sudden, I look up, and we're all beginning to smell smoke. And you're beginning to feel heat on the back of your neck. Okay? Falls are here. I'm here. Ropes going that way. There's only one way in and one way out. And as we all turn around, it is engulfed in flames. There's no way out and live. I can take a person, put them in a wheelbarrow, take them from one side of the falls to the next. It's not a publicity stunt now, is it? It's a matter of life and death. Now, what you could do is say, get out of the way. <laughs> I'm going to do this. Yeah. And you're going to die doing it like everybody else did. But when it's no longer, oh, maybe, why not? But a matter of life and death when I see the need. And the man makes the offer and he proves he can do it by rising from the dead. I go, 
Tell me about you again. I'm listening a little bit more closely now than I was. I see there's only one way out, and you're the way out. See, the, the, problem, the problem with this thing with Blondin is, um, see, I, I mean, many of us, we just, I mean, this is where I would have been. I was hanging between convinced and committed. I would have said, well, I got one foot in convinced and one foot. No, I'm sorry. That's just, no, no. It just, that's just not the way. You're, you're either convinced or you're in. You're either out or you're in. Um, I, I can believe all the right things about Jesus and never say I do, for those of you who were here last week or, or watched last week. Um, I can believe all the right things. But you know what the, James says? Even the demons believe and they tremble. So it's one thing to give mental assent and even some activity. I'm not saying that you're, you're living like an atheist, but the issue is, again, I can hang out with, I used the analogy with Annette last week, I can hang out with Annette until we die, but I never said I do. I never surrendered myself into her and she into me, and it's even more so when it comes to the dash and the line and surrendering myself into the heart and life and accepting the sacrifice of Christ as my only means to make it across. And escape the flames that are looking to engulf me. So the problematic issue is, is this with us religious folks, which I was one. Here's what I have to do. I cease insisting and desiring that God accept me based upon my performance. That's meology. Do you see that? This is what I want. If I am living a religious life, hoping I'm being good enough and attaching Jesus to it, that's still meology. Maybe religious meology, but it's still looking, God, you've got to accept me because of what I do and my validating performance record, how I validate myself based on my performance. I no longer accept God based on his performance. From my perspective, that's meology too. So I cease insisting God accept me based on my performance, and I no longer accept God based on his performance, from my perspective. And then I start believing, and therefore living like God loves and accepts me, not because of, accepts me because of his performance, not mine. That's biblical Christianity. And that is a huge line of demarcation between the two of them. So, okay, page 35, God speaks relationship. You guys have to give me a little bit more time tonight because of a, a momentary interruption. I hope Derek is doing, oh, Darren's doing okay. Oh, there he is. Darren, you're good? Good, brother. So glad to see that. Yes. Um. So God speaks relationship. I mean, we have called the Bible God's love letter. It, it is, it's there to reveal the truth about God's character and thereby draw us to him because of his goodness. Um, Paul wrote to the young pastor, Timothy. He wrote, he said, that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. Okay, the scriptures. From childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom... So he's not saying the sacred writings give you salvation. He says the writings are able to give you the wisdom, the knowledge that you need that leads to getting in the wheelbarrow, saying I do, receiving the gift, to salvation through faith, which is a gift of God, which is in Christ Jesus. See, the Bible is to draw us into relationship with God, in two-way relationship with God. Um, you know, I think, I think about married couples, and uh, who do I want to uh, get here just to do this in the little bit of time that I've got here? Um, I'm going off camera for just a minute. This is going to be trouble, but I'm just going to do that. So I'm going to act like Peter, a guy that you know. Okay, George, Doris, okay, hi, I'm sorry, forgive me. I was going to go over there, but they gave me a dirty look. Um, <laughs> Um, maybe I'm going to leave you alone. 
I'm going to do that. I am going to go. I, I just have to do this. I'm sorry. I'm going over to my side of the table here. Okay, Brian, Stephanie, please just help me. I'll, I'll tell you later. Okay, so Brian, Stephanie, Bo, great couple. Um, how long have you guys been married? 18 this year? 17 years? 18 years? Sorry, Stephanie. I didn't realize that you didn't know. Um, okay, so 18 years? It was 18 this year. 18 this year. Okay, is that right, Stephanie? I don't think so. Okay, all right. Maybe we'll come over here to this side. Uh, should we go with Beth? You guys would do better. Um, okay, so how long have y'all known one another? Six years before that. Okay, so let's say 24 years. Let's just go with 24 years. Um, how much, Stephanie, did you trust Brian 25 years ago? Uh, 25, 25 years ago. You didn't know him 25 years ago. You didn't know him, okay. You didn't trust because you didn't know him. Okay, then you met him 24 years ago. How much did you trust him 24 years ago? A little bit. How about 20 years ago? A little bit more. Little bit more. Why? Because he proved himself. He proved himself. Right. And then 15 years ago? More. Okay. More, more, and more. So the more you knew him, the more you trusted him. Would you say the more you loved him even? Yeah. Okay. You'd say that. Yeah. And, and, and from that, was there a greater desire to serve him because you, you loved him? Please say yes. Okay. So... Um, <laughs> All right, so the more you, so, so again, now, now think about this when it comes to, thank you guys so much. Uh, so think about this when it comes to, uh, to our relationship with God. Okay, the, the more you know him, okay, the, the more you get to know him, the more you trust him, uh, the more you love him, the more you serve him. It's not out of religious need or fear, um, it's because the more you know who he is and his, his word reveals who he is, the more we know him, the more we find him, him trustworthy, the more we fall in love with him, <clears throat> the more we desire to serve him. Not because I get to go to heaven, not so that God will accept me, but because he has accepted me. He's placed me into Christ and I see that he's trustworthy and I am so grateful that he has given himself for me. The more you know him, Right, this is eternal life, Jesus said. So you know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he said. It's knowing him. And this is the truth that God wants us to know. And that's not true necessarily in every, in every relationship. But it's true in a lot of relationships. Not this one. Uh, this, this couple, um, through years of hardship and marriage, uh, decided to go to, to, to uh, Israel. And they ended up in Jerusalem. But unfortunately, while they were in Jerusalem... Um, his wife um, passed away. Um, the, the Jewish undertaker came and said, Sir, um, you, you've, got a, you've got a choice here. You can, you can either have your wife um, buried here in Jerusalem. It would be fantastic. It would only cost you about $500 to do that. Uh, or you could have her shipped back to, to Poughkeepsie, where you're from. But it's going to cost you about $15,000 to do that. He said, so he thought about it for a minute. He said, I, I think I'm just going to take her back to the States. He said, sir, I mean, it would be so fantastic, you know, for her to be buried here in the Holy Land. It's just going to cost you a few dollars. He said, he said, why wouldn't you do that? He said, well, he said, a long time ago, a man died here in Jerusalem. And three days later, He, 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 he rose from the dead and he said, uh, I just can't take that chance. So, so, so not, not all things work out just right. Um, but, re but really, honestly, with the more we the more we, the more time we invest in God and ingest his word, the more we come to know him and trust him and love, and love him. And the desire is now service, not so that he will accept me, but because I see in spite of me, he has accepted me. Uh, Jesus said this, the thief comes only only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life and have it more 
abundantly. As I said earlier, we are made in the image of God. And the greatest thing about the image of God as we see it is the image of God is relational. Even in the Gospel of John, the first verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of John says this. In the beginning was the Word. Very good. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. I mean, even his name says communication, relationship. And so, and at the very depth of our being, that's who we are. Let me just prove that to you real quick. Let's, let's just go into a funeral parlor right now. I want you to just go there. And you walk up to a coffin. And inside that coffin is the lifeless body of the person that means more to you than anything else in the world okay how much would you give for that person to come out of that casket what means more to you nothing which proves at the depth at the very core of our being we are relational image bearers of God. God looked over our lifeless bodies. And what was more important to God or valuable to God than for us to have life? He gave his son so that you and I could have what we could never have ourselves. And that is life in him. So as we look tonight at why and how should we read the Bible, um, it's important for us to see, and you'll talk about it at your, at your tables tonight, just how, how do I do this? Well, you know, one of the things that I would, I would encourage you is it's not how much you read. I mean, you can look at this and you go, oh, my gosh, where do I even start? Well, we typically encourage people to start not at the beginning, but in the Gospels. The Gospel of John is a great place to start. Just read the first chapter and then read it again. But not only do that, pray. God, if you're there, this really is your word. I want to get to know you. I don't want to read a book like I always read books, just so I could say I read the book, but I have no idea what was in the book when I finished reading it. I want to know you. This book is not so much to reveal information, it's to reveal the creator. And so find a spot, find a quiet spot. Have a, a journal next to you or just a pad with a pen. And then do this. Take this with a pen and mark this sucker up. What does this mean? What's that question? Man, what? I'm bringing this question to my table leader next week because I got no idea what that means. Great. But this is God's love letter to us. It's his instruction man manual. It's how we get to know him. It's one of the greatest ways we get to know him. Um, in, in terms of praying, a great way to pray is just by taking the Bible and pray it. Tim, uh, just real quickly, Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? But make that a prayer. Lord, you are my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Lord, you've made me to lie down in green pastures. You've led me beside still waters. You restore my soul. You guide my path in, in righteousness for your namesake. To, to let just, th there's so many prayers in this book, in the, in the, in the Psalms, the 150 Psalms or songs and prayers to God and throughout through Paul's epistles as well. And so, um, and so these are just, just ways that we build up our spiritual muscle. But dead muscles are fully atrophied. We need life. And that life is given to us only in Jesus Christ. That, that spiritual muscularity is given to us in Christ. How do I receive that? Again, tonight, I just, I just want to encourage you. My question, my question for those of you who have been here is like, what are you waiting for? 
Has anyone made you a better offer than this? Your death, my life. Abundance in the dash and forever beyond your wildest imaginations the moment after your heart stops. He's already made the first move. He says, hey, now come to me if you're weary, you're burdened. I will give you rest. I will give you life. He's just an I do away. Like I said last week, it has nothing to do with what your, your denomination is or anything else. This has everything to do with you and Jesus and nobody else. And so I, I just, again, want to encourage you tonight while you're staring at the ceiling because you had too much coffee. Say, God, are you there? Is this true? If so, I want to believe. I don't want to believe a lie, but I want to believe the truth. And if this is the truth. I want to know you. And I'm asking you to reveal yourself to me if this is the truth. So next week, interesting topic, evil. How do we resist evil? We'll talk about that next week. Again, I've gone over a little bit tonight, but I appreciate your indulgence and your patience. Let's take a quick break, get back to our tables as quickly as possible, and enjoy the rest of our evening together. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for watching live stream.